All right, well, good morning, y'all. <laughs> I don't see why we can't announce it like that every week. Like, I think if you have your Bibles open to the Gospel of Mark, chapter 4. Some of you have heard the name Vince Lombardi. His name is on the trophy that my beloved Buccaneers will be winning again this coming football season. And that uh, your favorite team isn't probably going to sniff anytime soon. (laughs) Vince Lombardi was the historic coach of the Green Bay Packers. And the the Green Bay Packers at the time when he was coach had an incredible run of success. And at the beginning of every single training camp, Coach Lombardi would begin by assembling his team together and holding in front of them a football. And he would begin every training camp by saying, gentlemen, this is a football. It was important to Vince Lombardi that his players grasped the fundamentals over and over and over again, even if he knew that they already knew it. This morning's passage I want to present to you is Jesus' equivalent of, gentlemen, this is a football. We're going to go through the parable of the sower. And it's a parable that most of us have heard over and over and over again. In fact, there are many who are outside of the church who are familiar with the language. Maybe not necessarily with what to do with it, but at least they're somewhat familiar with the story. And you might be tempted to just kind of say, oh, okay, yeah, parable of the sower, got it. Parable of the soil, parable of the seed, whichever you want to call it, got it. I'll just scroll Facebook during the next few minutes while Carl's preaching, and then we'll see what he has to say next week. And I want to discourage you from doing that, but instead to focus in on what Jesus has to say. One ancient writer described this parable, and he said, this parable does not need ap- needs application, not exposition. I'm probably not going to give you a whole lot of new information this morning. A little bit, just to keep you on your toes, but not a whole lot of new information. But instead, it's coming with a plea for all of us to hear Jesus' words and to act on them. The parable starts out with the first nine verses with Jesus giving the parable. We'll start in verse 1. And he began to teach beside the sea. And a very large crowd gathered about him. So that he got into a boat and sat in it on the sea, and the whole crowd was beside the sea on the land. And he was teaching them many things and parables. And in his teaching, he said to them, now, I want to hang out here just real quick on this word, listen. This is where we get to have fun with language again. The word that's translated listen there comes from a Greek word meaning to hear. And it's really interesting in that the word for hear, if you add just one simple three-letter prefix in Greek, it changes the word from to hear to to obey. One three-letter prefix changes the entire meaning of the word. And so there's a built-in connection between the idea of listening and obeying. One writer described obeying as being hyper-listening. And when Jesus issues this, when he says listen, he, the form that it's taken, this is a command. And so 
with Jesus' authority, I command you to listen to what's going to happen starting now. Behold, a sower went out to sow. And as he sowed, some seed fell along the path, and the birds came and devoured it. Other seed fell on rocky ground, where it did not have much soil, and immediately it sprang up, since it had no depth of soil. And when the sun rose, it was scorched, and since it had no root, it withered away. Other seed fell among the thorns, and the thorns grew up and choked it, and it yielded no grain. And other seeds fell into good soil and produced grain, growing up and increasing and yielding thirtyfold and sixtyfold and a hundredfold. And he said, He who has ears to hear, let him hear. This is the parable that Jesus gives to his disciples. And he's clearly explaining the kingdom of God. And to go back to the ancient writers, this does not require exposition, but rather application, but maybe there's one exception. I'm not sure if you've noticed this detail. This is a, a really inefficient farming style. Isn't it? It's a sower with seed who is scattering seed just wherever. Now, it's inefficient if you're applying a 21st century modern mindset to this. But this was ancient practice. They did not have, obviously, the tools, the implements that we had. This was common to how they would have farmed. It literally would have been, we're going to scatter seed wherever we possibly can, figure out where it grows, and then that area will be the area that we concentrate our time and our energy on. Their version of a plow was a sharp-ended stick that they would just jam into the ground in hopes that the seed would fall into the ground and would begin to grow. So from a modern perspective, yes, this is a horribly inefficient way of planting seed, but it's very consistent with an ancient method in first century Middle Eastern climates and geography to sow seed. So that's the exception. Well, except maybe there's another exception. There's one other exception. Couldn't help it. Isn't this a waste of seed then? Isn't this just kind of silly that this is how you would handle it? Aren't you potentially losing more than you're ever actually going to gain by scattering seed in this way? Again, if we're applying a modern 21st century mindset to it, then yes, this is horribly ridiculous and is colossally wasteful to do it like this. But in the ancient world, this fit. In the perspectives of the ancient world, a successful harvest was one that produced tenfold of what was sowed. Now, if you go to the end of this parable, at least the end of the parable, not the explanation, in verses 8 and 9, what does Jesus say? Growing up and increasing, yielding 30-fold and 60-fold and 100-fold. So Jesus is saying the seed that's going to go down here is going to do even better than what you normally expect would happen with seed. Now, along the way, there becomes a question. Why is Jesus now speaking in parables? This is the first that we've seen in the Gospel of Mark. In the Gospel of Matthew, which is 28 chapters long, Jesus doesn't start talking in parables until Matthew chapter 13. So why is he now deciding that he's going to talk 
in parables. Well, as far as the Gospel of Mark is concerned, let's consider where he's been. He's already been openly teaching and openly healing, and every time he does, it seems like somebody else new is breathing threats against him, trying to figure out how they're going to destroy him. At the same time, he's collected a group of followers who are dialed into everything that he has to say. And so he's trying to figure out, how do I, well, he's not having to spend that long figuring out, he is Jesus, by the way. But he creates a system where he's able to instruct his followers while at the same time kind of confusing and confounding those who are on the outside. Mark records it this way. When he was alone, those around him with the twelve asked him about the parables. And he said to them, to you has been given the secret of the kingdom of God. But for those outside, everything is in parables. And then in verse 12, he quotes from Isaiah chapter 6, verses 9 and 10. And Isaiah chapter 6 is to acknowledge that there there is a hard-heartedness to large groups of people. And so Jesus quotes from Isaiah here in verse 12, So that they may indeed see, but not perceive, and may indeed hear, but not understand, lest they should turn and be forgiven. Jesus wasn't merely being cute and an extravagant storyteller by choosing to speak in parables. It was a technique that he used to essentially keep his teaching veiled from the outsiders. So they had a little less information to bring against him because why? They were already hard-hearted. They would have heard these stories and it would have made no sense to them. It would have not connected. But his followers, those who chose to be with him, those who were submitting to his teaching, were able to still be instructed along the way. Verses 13 and following. He said to them, do you not understand this parable? How then will you understand all the parables? This is your cue. There's more parables to come. The sower sows the word, and these are the ones along the path where the word is sown. When they hear, Satan immediately comes and takes away the word that is sown in them. And these are the ones sown on rocky ground, the ones who, when they hear the word, immediately receive it with joy. And they have no root in themselves, but endure for a while. Then, when tribulation or persecution arises on account of the word, Immediately they fall away. And others are the ones sown among thorns. They are those who hear the word, but the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches and the desires for other things enter in and choke the word, and it proves unfruitful. But those that were sown on the good soil are the ones who hear the word and accept it and bear fruit. 30-fold, and 60-fold, and 100-fold. Whether you call it the parable of the sower, the parable of the seed, the parable of the soils, it's all the same big picture. There are four soils that are described. Three are bad, one is good. And of the three, two are really closely connected to each other. So let's pick apart the parable now. So we can apply it rightly. Let's just state the obvious. The sower here represents God, and the seed represents the word of God. 
And from there, we're told that God is out spreading this seed. He is spreading his word, and he encounters four different types of ground. The first is the pathway. These are those who are hard-hearted and spiritually disinterested. They could really care less. They can hear God's word. It will have zero impact on them. They will not be moved. They have decided long in advance that they're not going to be moved. Let's be really honest. You can have pathway people within the life of your church. I hope that's not the case here. But statistically speaking, there's going to be a certain percentage of people who are here and don't really care. It has no impact. Maybe they're here just to kind of keep the peace at home. Maybe they're here because they had nothing else to do on a Sunday morning. But really, they have no interest whatsoever. They're hard-hearted. And they're spiritually disinterested. Jesus says something really interesting about this. In verse 4, as he sowed, some seed fell on the path, and the birds came and devoured it. That seed never implanted itself. It never made its way into the individual's mind or heart. And as he describes it in verse 15, he says, These are the ones along the path where the word is sown. When they hear, Satan immediately comes and takes away the word that is sown in them. It's because it bounced off their heart and they did nothing with it. The second ground is rocky ground. And this are these are people who get excited about God's truth and even make a commitment to say, yes, I'm going to follow this. And then life slaps them in the face. And when the difficulties and the trials show up, They believe that following Jesus is more of a burden than a relief. And so they walk away. Guess what? You can have those kinds of people in your church too. Now, they're in a little better situation and that there was at least a momentary spark where hearing the truth of the gospel was life-giving to them. But then difficulties and challenges come. And the rocky ground is very quickly connected to the third soil, which is the the thorny ground. Whereas the rocky ground, they are drawn away because life is difficult. Thorny ground people, they're drawn away because the world seemed to be much more attractive to them. Perhaps the idea of money, status, accomplishments perceived freedom, drew them away. And there was a sense of growth at first. That that seed got implanted in the ground and it began to grow and then the thorns just choked it out. It never could experience real life. If you need an illustration of this, try to grow azaleas in the middle of a blackberry bush. It's going to get choked out. 
drawn away by what the world has to offer. Now here's where I want to try and make an announcement, but also do a correct analogy. Um, how many of y'all have experienced that life is hard? Okay, if you didn't raise your hand, you're either uh, like uh, 18 months old or you're not paying attention. And sometimes when life gets hard, we're forced with the, to make a decision. How am I going to respond to life being hard? And there are good ways of responding to life being hard, and then there's less good ways of life being hard. And with this an announcement, please know I'm not making an equation that if this is true of you, that somehow you are not a follower of Jesus. I'm not, I am not, I'm not doing that. Did you hear me? I, I, I said I'm not doing that. Okay. But I do recognize that when life gets hard, we can all be very tempted to pursue lesser substitutes to try and make life easier. We find out that it actually makes life harder. And so we end up giving ourselves over to drugs, alcohol, work, food, sleep, gambling, pornography. Go on down the list. And so I want to again appeal to you that if you are struggling with this, I want to say this first. Number one, you are loved in this church. Your struggle may be different from somebody else's struggle. And your struggle may really be choking the life out of you, but you are loved in this church. Number two, if you're struggling and you're honest about it, you will never, ever, ever, ever experience shame. Number one, you won't experience shame from Jesus. That's not how he operates. And you will not experience shame from this church family. I want you to acknowledge that the struggle is real and that the struggle is hard and that you need help. So, here is the announcement. How about that for the lengthiest preamble to an announcement ever? Which would be to encourage you, if you are wrestling with addictions, I don't care what your addiction is. That's not apathy. It's just saying it doesn't matter. That if you're wrestling with that, we, we want to provide help and hope for you. In a way that shows you the love of Jesus, and that shows you the love of this church family, and that provides tremendous grace to those who need it. So on Tuesday night, starting March 29th, we'll be meeting in Bethel Hall. You can go onto the church website. You can register there. We'll do our very best to keep your stuff confidential. This will not be the source of like future sermon illustrations. We want to do what we can to serve and love and walk alongside you if you're wrestling. If you are in a place in your life where you are not wrestling, here's what I want from you. I want you to pray diligently for those who are. And I want you to love them well for having the courage to step forward to seek the help and hope they need. So even if this is not necessarily your story, you have a part to play in it. Stuff chokes out life from us. And Jesus said that he's come to give life. And we want to represent that fairly. The fourth kind of soil is the good soil. Those who hear the gospel, responds to it, and is transformed. And it becomes that tree planted by water. 
as it draws nourishment and it grows. Our desire is to see life transformation. And the way that we teach that here is to recognize that everybody has a different rate at which they grow. And very little, if any, growth is linear. It usually looks like a big bowl of spaghetti that hopefully by the end there's a little bit of a noodle sticking out like this way. That's what life is. But the general trajectory is one towards growth. We're not terribly interested in speed of growth. And we're not even necessarily completely wound up about the quantity of growth. But we want to see that. J.C. Ryle, former bishop of Liverpool, said this, Let us ask ourselves, with what kind of hearts do we hear the word? Never, never may we forget that there is only one infallible mark of being a right-hearted hearer. That mark is to bear fruit. To be without fruit is to be on the way to hell. Jesus has appointed you that you would go and bear fruit and prove that you are his disciples. Now here's the really awesome, awesome news. If your heart is honestly more consistent with soil types one, two, or three, the path, rocky ground, thorny ground, Jesus can do a transforming work in your heart to convert that soil into good soil. But you have to ask. You have to be willing to submit to the authority and the lordship of Jesus Christ who can take hard, rocky, thorny ground, churn it up, soften it up, make it good soil where fruit can grow. Jesus says this in John 15, Abide in me and I in you, as the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine. You are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit, for apart from me you can do nothing." Here's the really good news. Who's responsible for bearing fruit? According to what we just read from Jesus, who actually makes the fruit grow? Okay, lots of whispered guesses. Be bold, y'all. Who's responsible for making the fruit grow? Jesus. What are you responsible for being? Dirt. That's your job. And if you think about it, it makes a whole lot of sense. Trace this all the way back to Genesis chapter 2. 
What did God make mankind from? Dirt. The message we're getting is you be what God designed you to be, dirt. And you commit yourself to him. He does all the growing. He produces the fruit. So what does the fruit look like? That's a really good question. It's a good thing scripture answers that for us. The fruit of the spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Isn't that awesome? For a couple of reasons. One, we know what to look for. But two, it's not this hard and fast metric. I have to get to 10 units of love and I've got the fruit. It allows for growth. It allows for the fact that somebody who is newer to following Jesus may not demonstrate the same amount of fruit as somebody who's been walking with Jesus for five decades. It allows for that growth. That allows for everybody to have a different trajectory, well, uh, different growth rate. It doesn't impose something difficult or imposing on them, but instead it allows the spirit to do the work in the life of the individual. And we, as the body of Christ, come alongside and we encourage each other in it. There are certain days, certain weeks, certain years where you're probably in a growth season that is just barely above flatline. There's other days, weeks, months, years, seasons, where you find yourself growing in remarkable ways. So here's my appeal this morning. If you're a follower of Jesus, if he's allowed that good soil to develop and he's bearing much fruit, cooperate with him in that process. Let him do his work. And if you are one of the first three soils, the path, rocky soil, thorny ground, would you recognize that apart from bearing fruit, you are in, as one of my friends said, you are in deep kimchi. Cry out to Jesus to transform you. Agree with God. You're in trouble. Confess and know that he will answer that. Repent and believe the gospel. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for your truth and your word. And Lord, I pray for each of us in our hearts this morning that you would help us to rightly assess where we're at and perhaps give us the courage to invite others to speak into it. But Father, I'm fairly convinced that most of us who have, who might have a a heart that's more like the path or rocky ground or thorny ground, we're already pretty aware of it. And I pray that you would do a supernatural work to transform that ground into good soil. And I pray that you would transform minds, 
hearts and lives. As you reveal yourself and your truth, we pray that you would rescue many from themselves, from their sin, and from your wrath. And we thank you that you sent your son to die in our place just so that could happen. And that when Jesus died on the cross, that he rescued us from ourselves and he rescued us from our sin and he rescued us from the wrath that we deserve and has replaced it with hope, grace, mercy, joy, contentment, and the promise of eternity. Father, I pray you would continue to bear much fruit within the church family known as Machias Community Church. And I pray that the fruit of love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control, I pray that would be evident and increasing. That we would be marked as a church family by these things. We thank you for your truth. We thank you for your word. We thank you for rescuing us because of the perfect finished work of your son, Jesus Christ, on the cross in our place. It's in his name we pray. Amen.